And that kind of opened my eyes to, to just being able to swallow that pill when you're young and you don't have a lot of money that it really makes you have conviction in your project. We have to stop giving candy to the, to the folks that are basically hell bent on just shutting it down in the United States. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Ben Samuels, and this is another episode of Coffee and Liquidity, the podcast that sits nicely at the intersection of curiosity and business. The American dream can mean so many different things to so many different people. There's no one right answer. There's no one right path forward. But let's talk about ways to set yourself up and your family up for financial freedom in the future. All right, and we are back. Coffee and liquidity, another episode. Today's uh, the, the second guest of the day is uh, Mike Umbro of uh, Fieldview Capital. Looking forward to uh, picking his brain. Uh, looks like he has a, a diverse background going from capital, oil and gas, energy, environmental. Uh, and so we're going to get a chance to talk about, I think, a, a number of things that are incredibly uh, you know, hot topics and, and uh, of some significance uh, you know, in the market today. So we're really looking forward to getting into the conversation, uh, like I either just said or maybe alluded to. He was coming out of uh, San Diego, California. And so for those that may be listening today, coming out of Midland, park the, uh, the preconceived notions for the next hour. Let's talk, I, I want to hear what Mike has to say about you know, the, the market coming from that side of the uh, the world, I guess we, we can call it to a degree. degree. Uh, Mike, I guess I'm firing shots at you already before even bringing you on. So with that, I'm just going to go ahead and bring it on live screen and uh, we can talk about some of some of this. How are we doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Doing well, doing well. Appreciate you taking the time. I really appreciate uh, you uh, you know, coming on and uh, looking forward to getting into the conversation. Like I kind of alluded to, uh, you know, it looks like uh, you know, from your background on LinkedIn that you sort of straddle the line between capital, investor, and energy uh, and coming out of California. So, so why don't you kind of give us a quick intro on yourself and kind of how you came to where you are today and some a little bit of history of, of what you've done. And uh, we'll just kind of go from there. Sure. Yeah, I know it's it's pretty rare to hear someone from San Diego deep in oil and gas, but uh, I'm born and raised in San Diego. I fell into the industry really in 2006, working for a buy side mergers and acquisition firm. We had a management team out of Houston. My job was to basically dial for production, sourcing upstream assets, you know, all over the mid continent, Texas, Oklahoma, and uh, the financial you know crisis hit. Our managing director failed to raise the $800 million he was raising. And I said, why am I calling people if we don't have money to buy these assets? And so I just, I love the straight talking nature of the industry. You know, anything's for sale at the right price for an investment banker. You know, that's kind of, that's what you want to hear. And and quite frankly, the deals are pretty large in oil and gas. So I just stuck with it. I started Fieldview in 2008, uh, did a deal in 2012, uh, down in the Eagleford when that was kind of kicking and uh, put a management team together with private equity money and, and they purchased an asset uh, down in South Texas and um, <clears throat> just felt continued to fall in love with the industry. And uh, the downturn of 14 to 16 hit, I went back and studied energy business at University of Tulsa and really wanted to uh, 
be more of an entrepreneur in the sense of, of being an operator rather than brokering transactions. And so uh, now I, I have two partners, a reservoir engineer and a petroleum engineer. We have some acreage up in uh, West Kern County, about an hour northwest of Bakersfield. And we're, we're excited. We're going to be drilling five wells here in December. And um, hopefully we can make a little bit of oil if, if uh, Governor Newsom lets us. And <laughs> we, we, uh, hopefully we're off to the races on that. So that's kind of a high level of how I got into it from, from a non-oil and gas. Uh, yeah. So I'm curious, you know, um, from the uneducated, I guess, out here in the Permian, um, you know, what is the current landscape in California? I felt like I had read something in recent weeks uh, that was talking about you know, California basically putting a moratorium on new drilling. Is, is that not the case? Or what's, what's the current landscape regu- you know, on the regulatory side? Yeah, Governor Newsom put an executive order to out a moratorium on frack permits. Uh, so really in California, it's, that mostly affects the big boys, uh, Chevron and, and CRC and ERA. 10 to 20% of the state's production is from wells that have been fractured in a high hydraulically fractured. It's a little bit different. We've got diatomite. It's a little bit different than the shale out, out in West Texas, but um, he's decided that anything with fracking or, or anything related to it is going to be, you know, his political whipping post. And so he's going after that. Um, he's going after a, a, the next step from that is to go after steam injection, which if you go after steam in California, you're really cutting out a lot of the production. Um, so I feel like, you know, early in my career, I was always a little nervous going to Texas, either selling services or looking for deals, knowing the uh, the stigma that's out there, you know, who is this guy from California? It's a bunch of liberal nuts out there. And, um, what is he going to do for me? But now I feel like more than ever, I'm coming to you from the future of regulatory hell and what what is being, you know, forced down us and, and really mm-hmm. with an objective to end production in California. And I think broadly, when you talk about, um, you know, activist type environmentalists, uh, what we're seeing from the federal government now um, across the country, I, I feel like more and more the California playbook is is going to impact those elsewhere, those in West Texas. And so I feel like it's, you know, my responsibility to just let people know how it's going down out here. And hopefully that helps everybody better prepare for what's coming at us. So to that end, uh, talk to me a little bit about, you know, um, give me a high profile just on the geology of, of the state. I mean, so is most of the production horizontal? Is it mostly vertical? You know, um, how many benches are, are you hitting in the good areas? What are the depths? Give, give me kind of a high level in, in the area out in Kern County. Yeah, high level, you know, it's, it's long live production. A lot of the major oil fields were discovered in the 1890s. Uh, a lot of thermal EOR. Uh, very typically shallow depth. So at our lease, we're targeting a zone uh, at about 1,200 feet for a steam flood where we'll have about 100, 120 producers and 70 injectors for steam. Uh, We have a bench below that that is at 1,500 feet that is a lighter gravity crude that we don't need steam. So we're actually really excited about that given the state of permitting and how long that can take in California if you don't need Mm -hmm. steam. Uh, these, these lighter oil wells are really attractive. Uh, again, though, it's, it's shallow 1500 feet. We're looking at doing some short laterals, you know, 800,000 feet, you know, really baby wells compared to what you're dealing with out there. Um, and then, and then as you get to the larger, more established producers like ERA, CRC, Chevron, 
they're going to be going after some of these deeper diatomite plays uh, where it's, um, you know, really a high pressure steam frack more than a traditional hydraulic fracturing uh, mm -hmm. situation. But that's kind of the high level of things you're seeing for us as an operator. We're targeting assets that are away from the coast. You don't want to be producing in Santa Barbara County and Ventura County. Uh, really, the L.A. Basin can be very challenging. So uh, we're particularly excited about being in Kern, Kern County, where you've got, you know, 1.7 billion barrels approved reserves. Seventy percent of your state's production is coming out of Kern County. And so we're really heavily focused on Kern County in the Central Valley in California. Now, does Fieldview own an operating company or do you JV with operators depending on the play? Or You guys are on the capital side, right? Yeah, so Fieldview is, is, is my, my firm as kind of an independent investment banker. So I've got a you know, Series 79. I house that at a broker-dealer kind of for gotcha. the okay. SE, FINRA type regulatory, you know, if I'm putting my deal-making hat on. Um, now in our, in our oil field, we're called premier resource management. So my role there has been as a partner and, and not necessarily brokering the deal, but being a partner in the deal was, was identifying the capital and raising the money, which we did in 2020. Um, so, so I have a, you know, a stake in that operation and, in premier resource management, and then we're going to be developing, uh, under premier resource management, that asset with our investors. Um, so anything that's kind of a transaction related um, event, I would do through my company FieldView as as kind of a you know investment banker intermediary situation. Gotcha. Okay, that that, make, that makes sense. All right, folks. Appreciate you listening in. Appreciate the support. Appreciate you being with me. Let's talk about Tossable Digits. One of our affiliate partners with Alderon Ventures is Tossable Digits. It's similar to a Google Voice, except that times 10. Now you can use it for anything, sales, ad tracking, workflow, real estate, any sort of follow-up you need, phone calls, text messaging. The kicker here though, Tossable Digits allows you to get a local number in up to 60 different countries. There's no contracts anytime, cancel anytime. It's a fantastic platform, super easy to use. You gotta check it out. Tossable Digits. Learn more about it at alderonventures.com backslash affiliate dash partners. One more time, that is alderonventures.com backslash affiliate dash partners. A-L-D-E-R-A-A-N-V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S dot com backslash affiliate dash partners. And now let's get you back to the show. I'm curious. So one of the things that we're tackling right now at the Permian uh, or, you know, is, is, is an issue and is going to continue to be an issue is, uh, you know, the produce water to oil cup. What does that mm -hmm. look like out, uh, out by you? Is that an issue? You know, I know that yeah. uh, as a state, California is starved of water. I mean, what does that look like on, on that side for you guys? I see it as a big opportunity. Um, for many years now, um, Chevron and other players have been selling produced water back to water districts and to use in farming and agriculture, obviously. So we grow a ton of uh, crops in the Central Valley that go mm -hmm. across the country. Uh, but the exciting part, like, for example, our, our water is between a 9,500 ppm TDS, total dissolved solids, your salt, uh, up to as high as maybe 16,000. So that's really about a tenth of the salinity that you're going to see in the Permian where you're up at, you know, 120,000 parts per million on, on your TDS. So the exciting thing about um, produced water in California is you really can clean it up and, and use it for agriculture or, or, or water banking or other methods to 
help alleviate a drought situation in the state. Um, the flip side, you could probably make the argument that the volume of produced water is fairly small. So will we actually make a dent in these drought scenarios? You know, I guess that's that could be debated. But for example, out at, out at our lease, we get less than six inches of rain out there, super dry. Um, mm-hmm. There's real, it's just dirt. So really, you know, you're getting the water to the point where you can use it for dust control safely. Um, but long term, I see potential for, for, you know, salt tolerant crops and other things as we kind of get into the ESG mandates of, of what we can do out there. There's a lot of opportunity to use uh, produced water in California, I believe. Are you seeing anything uh, you know, in, re- in regards to seismicity or, or you know, these zones pressuring up to a level that's concerning? Not really. Um, not, 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 in, not in our case. Uh, if anything, I hear and, and have kind of started researching more of that on the geothermal side, um, that, that there tends to be some induced seismicity there. But um, I, I think I'm not a geologist or a petroleum engineer, but um, I, I think there there's just plenty of plenty of room in, in California subsurface to to put that water away safely. So it really, I haven't heard of induced seismicity really being an issue at all. Uh, with that said, we don't have many of the third party SWDs that you'll see in West Texas. So you know mm-hmm. the 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 amount of injection is is probably smaller. Um, you'll also, you know, reuse, uh, that water for steam makeup if you're in a thermal EOR play. So putting that water into a, into a steam drive and a reservoir that's relatively shallow, I think that's probably got something to do without, you know, with, with not seeing the induced seismicity. Um, and then of course, the fact that you don't have, you know, thousands of these SWD third-party SWDs out there to, to manage and look at. There's really only a handful of injection sites uh, that you can go to third-party. So most mm-hmm. folks, most operators are just in, are, are just getting their own UIC permits for, uh, for steam floods or for, you know, water floods as a method of, you know, handling produced water out here. So putting on your, you know, your transactional hat or, you know, the entrepreneur hat, what, what are some of the areas of opportunity that you see in the market out there or, or the market abroad, uh, you know, in terms of someone, you know, that wants to start a business or put some dollars to work? What, what are some of the things that you're looking at, uh, you know, near term and long term? I think the biggest the biggest takeaway that, that I was able to confirm as we raised our money for, for our field um, is to, it's kind of counterintuitive, but potentially to think smaller and think locally in terms of when you're raising money, who to go after. Mm-hmm. Uh, initially, we were thinking, okay, do we go after private equity to develop our our field and, and the thought process was really well, you know, A, most of your oil and gas private equity is out of Texas. There's going to be the California stigma. Uh, but B, we, as we thought about it, there's, there's so much oil and gas money in the Central Valley and, and so many, you know, individuals that have either made money with service companies or through other business endeavors that touch oil and gas. Uh, and that really helped guide our capital raising process and identifying investors that either own service companies or were, you know, former colleagues that have money to invest into the play. So that's, that's exactly what we did. We decided to hold off on private equity. Uh, we, we, we told essentially friends and family what we were up to. We didn't really do a, you know, a 
hard sales pitch. We, in fact, work with our investors over the course of probably more than a year to you know, get them comfortable with our asset. We put collectively between myself and two partners, we put well over $700,000 into the project first. So I think that's another key takeaway is you know, really being able to show that you're not only putting that sweat equity in, but the hard cash. And that's what any investor is going to want to see is that you're, you're putting in money into this thing either you know before they come in or as they're coming in. Um, and that allowed us to build a lot of trust with our investors and, and really uh, bring them in as, as, as part of a strategic you know, board level you know, investor in, in one sense, because they all have oil and gas experience. And I think there's going to be a real need to have those strategic investors on your side if you're, you know, kind of in a startup phase, if, if that's where we're kind of taking the conversation. Of course, that, you know, you got to scale up if you're going bigger and, and go after private equity. But I'm seeing a lot of the private equities kind of do the the rebranding and the pivot like you see BP and Shell doing and, and kind of rebranding their strategies as, you know, climate infrastructure or clean infrastructure. And, you know, it's kind of like, wait a minute, I thought you were you were investing in upstream oil deals last year. And, and now you're, you know, looking at solar farm. So uh, it's a very interesting, I think, very dynamic and changing market right now for people raising money. So speaking of a dynamic and changing market, you know, you mentioned that you started uh, the you know, Field Group Capital Group in 2008. Is that when you raised the money as well? And, and if so, I mean, what was what was that like, given what was going on in the market you know, during that time? Yeah, for for me, my at twenty, I was twenty five at the time. My business model was: I need to put a deal together and and put this together, get a nice fat fee out of it, and then grow. So I actually didn't raise any money. Um, I just was was brokering deals at that point. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so bringing bringing as much value as I could to identifying management teams, identifying assets, identifying capital, and bringing that all together into one transaction. Um, I think it would be a really if I didn't have this oil field project with my partners and I wasn't so excited about that, I think now would be a really interesting time to be raising a fund uh, to go after uh, certain things that, that, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of committed to oil and gas over the long term as, as folks kind of transition out, I see a big vacuum created. And I think that that provides a lot of opportunity for young men and women in our industry if they can ride out the, you know, the downturns and the ups and downs, which is, you know, I think the biggest challenge. What's some advice that you have on that, you know, how to, how to weather the good or, you know, staying in the good and weather the bad. Yeah. You know, I, I, one of the best, I've gotten two really good pieces of advice from, from oil men over the years. I was at Namoga, the New Mexico oil and gas association back in, I don't know, 2014. It was a while ago. And I sat with a husband and wife that owned a, a an operating company. And the, the, he said, you know, when it's really good, don't buy anything unless it's with cash. And that, that was his piece of advice that I tried to stick to is just don't have any personal debt to be able to mm-hmm. ride that out. Uh, the other piece of advice that I got from uh, a guy is actually, his name's David Combs. He runs, runs a, uh, uh, operating company called Termo out of Long Beach, California. And I remember visiting with him on a deal. He was looking to raise money for a well in Northern California. And, you know, we were kind of talking about the risk reward of the, of the well. And he said, you know, don't put any money in it that you can't afford to never see again. And that kind of opened my eyes to, to just being able to, you know, kind of swallow that pill when you're young and you don't have a lot of money that 
um, you know, it really makes you have conviction in your project and really makes you realize that, you know, you, you can't go, you know, spending a lot of money when times are good. And then um, as you're evaluating these projects, you know, only putting in what you can you can afford to lose. And those those are kind of two pieces of advice that have always stuck with me. So you mentioned uh, in on the LinkedIn profile uh, that you know you, you have, uh, or at least uh, that you consult with and have an expertise in uh, you know, exit planning and transition of ownership. We kind of talked about that a little bit. You know, that, it sounds like you're talking about that some. What, is it, you know, what does it mean to kind of time the exit and time the entry, right? Yeah, you know, I think it's I think it's a really delicate thing to do. What I've seen, what I've noticed as an as a as a investment banker back in thirteen and fourteen, when you're approaching people that own service companies or own assets, at that point in time, it's very hard to to get folks to either one take a phone call or two. Uh, sell the company at a reasonable valuation because expect cash flow is good. Expectations are, hey, I want to sell for five to seven times EBITDA or nothing less. And um, if you own a service company, I mean, you kind of have to ratchet that in half to get uh, serious private equity or, or serious buyers on the line. You know, and then we kind of go through this downturn of 16 to 18, and then recently the COVID downturn. And you know, nobody wants to sell at that at, at those prices, and and when they're business is really struggling. So it can be a real challenge to have a, a, a open, honest conversation. And really, it, it almost comes down to timing more than anything. And these deals, these deals always take much longer than you expect. You know, any private equity buyer is going to come in there and say, Oh, yeah, we can close in 30, 45 days, you rarely see that happen. Um, so then so then you have to kind of wait it, it you know, it's almost like a, a window of opportunity in, in, you know, in the regulatory or policy world when climate change becomes such a buzzword that everybody jumps in. It's kind of the same thing. You've got to catch a, a founder or, or a group that's willing to sell. You got to catch them at the right time. You got to catch them at the right valuation. Um, I think now that, you know, maybe we see prices uh, settle into, you know, some sort of a range between 50 and $70 a barrel. I think now is a good time to really look at, you know, if you own a service company, are you, you know, are you a consolidator? Are there opportunities to buy folks that have, you know, maybe, maybe held on to their businesses too long through these downturns and they've got a, you know, an older founder that, that just kind of wants to retire or, or, um, or, you know, something of that nature. So I think we're going to enter in a time of, of serious consolidation. I think we're going to see some deal activity, but, um, we'll see if that, you know, that window remains open for long enough to, to see some assets move. So I'm curious, what, what advice do you have for someone uh, that's just getting started, you know, has a good network, has, has been in the, in the industry for a while, and is maybe trying to break out and maybe close some deals on their own and try to go that route? What, what are some, you know, words of wisdom that you may have? Uh, for, for me personally, the best thing I could do is, is continue to bet on myself. So in the downturn, you know, these downturns are brutal in oil and gas and folks either say, hey, I'm just going to call it quits and leave the industry um, or I'm going to, you know, tough it out and learn a new skill set. For me, it was going back to the University of Tulsa uh, to study in that 14 to 16 time frame. Uh, most recently, I, I finished an environmental management degree at Duke University at the Nicholas School of the Environment it, from 19 to, to 21, really just recently, seeing that ESG and the environment wave was coming. Um, now, there, there's the opposite side of that where you're spending money on education and, and, and maybe you don't need to spend that money. Um, for me, I've always found value in doubling down on that. Um, mm -hmm. And then the, the, I think the biggest piece of advice, if, if you're not, you know, 
going back to, you know, get a degree in petroleum engineer or whatever to improve your skill set. Um, I think the biggest thing that's helped me is to just stay active on long-term engagement. So if you're, you know, we have a lot of independent consultants in oil and gas. So, um, you know, keep that consistent, you know, cash flow going. If you've got, if you've got some kind of a independent contractor agreement or consulting arrangement with an operator, uh, you know, if you're a landman sourcing deals for an operator, um, you know, it can be hard to wrap your head around, Hey, I got to, you know, cut ties with that and focus only on my project. Um, I found value in focusing on my projects in addition to, uh, different, different agreements with, uh, you know, environmental service company that I work for or other, you know, consulting agreements I've done in the past, you know, there's, there's always time to kind of balance. And, uh, as long as you're upfront with your clients about what you're doing and, and you're not creating those conflicts there, I think the best thing you can do is just have some steady cash flow to put food on the table while you're developing your, your, your project that is your, you know, your home run ball or whatever it might be. No, I, th- I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, there, there's a lot of transferable skills there uh, that, that you're talking about in the process. And so, and so you mentioned uh, you know the environmental piece. What what is the current landscape? You know, in California, you mentioned that you guys are kind of maybe on the leading edge of some of the things that you know that some some parts some other parts of the country may see. What are your thoughts on that? I think there's I think there's a lot of opportunities for our industry, both in California, in Midland, across the country, to do better in terms of our our waste handling and our recycling, the the capabilities are there to recycle water, to recycle, you know, muds, to uh, minimize your oil going to landfill. I noticed uh, a post you put about that pipeline leak in North Dakota just a few minutes ago that, you know, a 700,000 barrel leak over, you know, a long period of time. We have Mm -hmm. so many of these self-inflicted wounds that when we do that, the environmental activist, it's just, you know, it's just candy to them. And and right. why we continue to do that as an industry, you know, it makes sense. People get greedy operating, you know, teams get in a bind. They have to keep that pipeline online. I get it. But that is just a huge self-inflicted wound. And I think, I think it can be, it can be a sensitive conversation. And it's one that I've kind of danced around as I've posted things online, not to, not to call out major operators, but um, I think there's a lot more that we can do as an industry to improve the current operations. And I think we're, we're, we can easily get misled down a path where we're expecting a major operator, a BP, a shell to become, you know, a wind, a wind operator or a solar operator, or we're expecting, you know, oxy to do, you know, CO2 floods and that's going to save the environment. Well, you know, Honestly, Oxy just left California, spun CRC off, and now they've got 9,000 idle wells. I really don't care if you're injecting CO2 in the Permian Basin. Why don't you spend a couple billion and plug all these wells? And now we're not giving the activists all this candy for them to just drop into the LA Times and the New York Times and say, hey, well, look at all these idle wells that, you know, we know they're not killing people. We know that in inside the industry, but the outsiders can create this fear that just everything is fear driven these days, as we know, and it really hurts the industry. So, you know, I'm kind of getting off, you're kind of getting me off, off the rails on your, on your show here on that rant, but it's kind of, it's true. We have to stop giving candy to the, to the folks that are, 
basically hell bent on just shutting it down in the United States. And we're seeing that kind of go across on LinkedIn this week about the Biden administration saying, oh, OPEC, please produce more while we just tamp down on local production. And it's asinine. It's crazy. And we know in the industry that it's crazy. But when we give the 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 bait to to them willingly through these pipeline leaks or through these idle wells, um, you know, what do we expect to happen? I mean, there is a subset of the country that is just never going to like oil and gas, no matter how clean we make it. Right. But with that said, we got to do a better job on the environmental side to, uh, you know, to minute, to minimize trucks on the road, because you know, they're going to come after that you, to minimize the methane leaks, because you know, they're going to be popping drones up there, uh, and are doing that now, uh, to showcase that the American oil and gas companies, the domestic companies are going to deploy the technologies to mitigate these environmental challenges. And we know that everywhere else, I shouldn't blanket it, but many other countries where we're getting these products, they either aren't tracking it, they're not reporting it accurately, um, or they're just not reporting it at all. And, and there's no way in that environment for us to win because the activists are never gonna go over to those countries and risk their lives reporting on these issues. So um, <laughs> I'll stop for a minute. <laughs> no, no, I think you you bring up some great points. I mean, and, and it's tough because, I mean, at the end of the day, I agree with your, your point, essentially, that, you know, we can either as an industry, we can choose to regulate ourselves or we can wait until the regulators come in and do it for us. Uh, you know, and, and we've done a good job of becoming, you know, much more safe and much more efficient in all these things. But there's, you know, there are significant lags in the process. There's significant areas of opportunity to, to, to improve. Um, and, you know, I think that I think you've, as of a recent, have sort of seen some motion towards fixing the problem, but but not not nearly enough. And and so I mean, we're, I think we're still sort of battling that. And to your point, it gets really tough because you know, to the layman, it's sort of an quote unquote easy argument to to sort of say, listen, yeah, we can make it a lot better domestically, but we're still buying the stuff from Russia, and until they change, like, what does it matter? But at the same time, that to your point, that's still giving the candy to the other side. Like you're, you're just, you're handing it onto a silver platter. And so I think there, there needs to be sort of this duality of, yes, we, you know, we can't be buying it from China, Russia, you know, Venezuela at all. Uh, at the same time, though, you know, we, we got to get better at doing it domestically because, you know, because a lot of the practices are, you know, untenable to a degree. And, and, to, and you're, you make a good point. That article that I just posted, I mean, things of that nature are still happening. Now, are they common? No, not at all. It's very rare, but, but they're still happening. And, and so, and until that really changes, I mean, you know, we're going to still be battling this to get, because, you know, I mean, there's also, again, to your point, there's a certain portion of the economy or a certain portion of the society that, it doesn't matter what we do. They're still going to hate it regardless. Um, right. and, and so I think, you know, being able or being willing, I guess, to be an active part of the conversation rather than just sort of ignoring it and saying, well, oil and gas is part of everything and just, you know, get over yourself. You know, that you, you kind of devalue the position by doing it that way, right? Right. Absolutely. And I, I think somehow there needs to be a bridge. I think there's a huge opportunity that we're all missing that, you know, we on the on the on the environmental activist side, it's transition 100 percent away from oil and gas. On our side, it's we got to keep making this. We still need it. Everybody needs it. And there's this 
I feel like there was the, you know, back in, I don't know, 2010 to 14, it was kind of like oil field 2.0 and things were going to transition and get better and optimize. And I don't know, did it happen? I, I still see a lot of progress to be made and it's wishful thinking, but it would be nice if our industry can come together with policymakers on both sides of the aisle and come and come and tell a story that there there has to be a middle road. There has to be the story that that tells uh, tells the folks about you know disadvantaged communities and how these policies, if you're going you know hardcore left on things, all of these all of these lower income folks are are just going to be hammered with energy prices. And you're seeing it in California. We've got 40% higher on gasoline at the pump, 40% higher on your utility bills. So I think there's a win-win for the industry and regulators, but there has to be a, a bridge built. There has to be trust. There has to be, you know, kind of a common understanding of how we're going to make the industry better as a whole. Yeah. And, and forgive, I guess, the cynic in me, but I mean, you know, I mean, what you're talking about is the left side of the, of the aisle admitting that basically like their entire thing they've been talking about is all a farce and right. like, that's not, that's not going to happen. Right. And so, right. so like, I, 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 I agree with what you just said, but I, but I, I you know, to get there, you, yeah, you would need the left to really back the throttle off a lot and, right. and you know, and we, you know, I don't know if you have a, a perspective on this. I think out in Kern County, don't in Kern County they farm. Is it mostly corn? And do you guys have cattle or, or no cattle? You, you there used to be a big uh, cattle industry in in the 1860s, and then a big uh, okay. big drought in the 1860s before you know I guess climate gotcha. change was a thing. But droughts happened back then, and the drought basically wiped out a lot of Shocker. The, a lot of the okay. cattle industry in California. Uh, but there's still there's dairy farms which are huge environmental concerns in the Central Valley for sure. I mean, so yeah, that's what I was going to say. I mean, when you when you look at so, so like in an area like Kern County, if there is a dairy farm, you know the the negative impact that that's going to have on the environment, comparative to you know a field of oil wells, is I mean it's insurmountable. It's not even close. And and changing the conversation and inviting that to the conversation and having this apples to apples conversation as opposed to just picking on the oil and gas industry, I think that's really. You know where we think. Did you by any chance read uh, Bill Gates's most recent book that he put out? No, um, I saw it, but I, <laughs> I I gotta like go find a copy somewhere because I don't want to give many of my money, but uh, maybe <laughs> I'll have to buy it. <laughs> so, so, uh, put give me your address on LinkedIn. I'll send it to you. I already okay. finished. I don't, I don't need to read it again. But uh, no, so but I mean in the book. So basically, um, and actually, I think the most recent IEA report uh, that you know, just came out a few weeks ago said the same thing. But it talks about, and I just I want someone on the on the left side of the aisle to explain this math to me. I don't know how much you're. I don't know how much math oriented you are, but maybe you can explain this to me. But so the book and and this report talk about that the world is going to grow by 2 billion people by 2050. Mm-hmm. It's uh, the economy, the world economy is going to double in size and the energy demand for that populace comparative to today is going to drop 8%. <laughs> okay. Right. And I like, I just like, I don't understand. Like, again, if you're like reading the IA report, like that's what it says. It's not like the case it's making. That's like what the math actually says. And it's, but like at the end of the report, like it says like, this is how, like, this is the roadmap to like get where we need to go. Right. And it's like, it doesn't take more than like a first grader to understand that like that math right. doesn't work. Right. Right. And exactly. I just don't, 
Well, and we're seeing it today that the, the, the demand pie continues to get bigger. So they keep telling us that renewables are going to take control and everything's going to be on solar and battery, but the pie keeps getting bigger. So renewables continue to be what? 2% of the total, uh, total supply. So yeah, I don't, I don't know how that math works out. And I, and I read a lot of those IEA reports and, and a lot of it is wishful thinking. It's like, Oh, we're no new oil field development starting now. Well, and then, you know, the week before that, came out shells announcing major discoveries off the coast of you know africa somewhere and and it's like it's interesting to see that these publications are coming out and it's almost feels like it's just to to gather momentum from from those that are outside of the industry and gather that support so we can keep ramming these things down these subsidies down for for clean energy but um, you know, going back to California and the dairy farms and, and upstream oil and gas, if you look at the greenhouse CARB, California Air Resources Board, puts out a scoping plan on emissions, upstream oil and gas emissions are something like 3.4% of the entire state's emissions. And meanwhile, right. California demands the most jet fuel and the most gasoline out of any state. We're, we're, we're demanding over 600 million barrels a year of crude in California. And it dropped to, I think COVID, the lockdown of Los Angeles of everything for a year, brought that down to like 420 million barrels or something. It was a big drop off, but it's like, you can still support the domestic industry and you know struggle to cut out the foreign suppliers and bring down emissions at the same. I mean, you can kind of do all these things and chip away at these things, but we're still Mm -hmm. needing so much oil and gas that it's, yeah, I don't know how the population grows globally and we get to that in 20. I, I always tell people, I kind of think we're, we're talking about the wrong date. We need to talk about 2100, not 2050. I don't think anything that's pegged to 2050 is realistic, but I think that uh, you know all these big hedge funds, all these guys that have made billions of dollars. It's easy for them to pump money into you know mm-hmm. solar farms and 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 wind farms and kind of get that PR bump, um, you know, throw it into a SPAC and you know they're exiting on the IPO as all these people are coming in. They're making their money regardless of if that's you know an economic venture. And I don't I don't think anybody really you know talks about that enough. It's just there's a lot of unrealistic you know, goals being thrown out there in my opinion, but. All right. Thanks for listening to the show. Wanted to take a quick break and talk about one of our sponsors. As always, you can learn more information about our sponsors on the affiliate partners page on alderonventures.com. That is A-L-D-E-R-A-A-N-V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S.com. Alderonventures.com. Layla Beds. They didn't want to just perfect the way you buy a mattress. They wanted to perfect the mattress itself as well. As we all know, mattresses are incredibly important. Getting a good night's sleep could not be more impactful to your day-to-day business, day-to-day life, family, friends, etc. They believe it's a place to rest, rejuvenate, and recharge both your body and your mind. And it's a battery recharger and launching pad for your best awake self. And you can't be the best awake self, best mom or bocce player, listener, boot camper, friend, boss without the best sleep and the best sleep unlocks the whole you the better you the you that's balanced ambitious present so go check it out alderonventures.com backslash affiliate dash partners Layla beds they have some fantastic specials going on right now 
$200 off a mattress, free pillows, and more. Check it out. And now back to the show. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, you, you see, I mean, okay, so who was behind the Keystone Pipeline getting killed? Warren Buffett. Why? Because he owned all the rail. I mean, it's like, right. like, you know, and, like there, and there's so many of those, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you can talk about it all day, but I mean, and, and, and again, to your point, it's not mainstream knowledge. People aren't talking right. about it. Um, and I mean, so let's go back to something you talked about a little bit earlier, uh, beneficial reuse. What are you, mm-hmm. um, you know, what, what are you seeing on the produced water side for beneficial reuse in California? I mean, is it, has it, you know, so you mentioned it's gotten to the point of being able to be used for ag, for ag use. Has right. it gotten, has it gotten potable yet? What are some of the, you know, where's the, uh, the roadmap right now? Yeah, I know there's a, there's a SPE paper on a field in San Ardo operated by Chevron that has a massive reverse osmosis system there. I think, I think they're discharging its surface because they get it to such a clean spec. Um, Kern River, which is a huge field they operate, uh, that produced water is essentially fresh. It's like 500 ppm on dissolved solids that they've been selling water back to the coella water district for years uh and there's actually some studies that have come out from duke nicholas school abner van gosh is a is a water chemist there that has put out some studies that show no ill effects to uh you know the agriculture products and no you know potential harm to those of us eating it so you know in a way if you eat almonds and pistachios and nuts you're probably eating a nut that has (laughs) has been grown with a little bit of oil filled water in it uh, mm-hmm. already out of California. Um, but I think there's an opportunity to do that across all fields. And I think there's opportunities that, you know, you don't see much, you know, grant writing being done for independent operators and smaller operators that maybe you have to aggregate this produced water to, to get it to scale, to sell it back to the water district. But, you know, mm-hmm. we're talking about it. And, and I think one of the things that needs to be done in our state in particular is, is there has to be a, a, a regulatory pathway and a pathway for the producer to, number one, be economic before we try to roll out these recycle technologies that that do exist already. Uh, but you got to allow operators to be economic and to produce to, to see what we can do on that you know next technology side. Um, but a lot of opportunities I see um, on liquid waste as well. Just you know foam returns, fluid returns, uh, you know, managing flow back in, in the Permian um, where you're, you, you've got an astronomical amount of trucking. And I think some of that is getting better, but I think there are huge opportunities to at, at out in California, you know, what we do at RL Environmental, a company, you know, I've been working with for, for four or five years now in a corporate development role. We set up centralized waste processing facilities where we'll take every drop of waste from a field foam returns on on the water bearing side produced water workover fluids we'll we'll treat that we'll we'll spin it through a centrifuge drop out solids get that water to a spec for beneficial reuse on the oil bearing fluids your tank bottoms your clean outs your line pigging all that oily waste you can spin that oil back get that oil to a sales spec for your pipeline give that back to the operator uh, and again, do that in a central location where you're not trucking and dispatching. One of the hurdles operationally, of course, is when you're dealing with massive operators, you've got you know, superintendents, you've got established relationships, and we all know how that goes. And so um, it can be, I think it can be a very difficult 
you know, transition to take place because you've got to essentially prove out a centralized model. But I think there's a lot of opportunities and, and they're being they're being developed out there. It's not to say that people aren't attacking these opportunities, but I think there are a lot of opportunities to, you know, streamline trucking, recycle fluids, uh, you know, and, and cut costs at the same time. It doesn't it just because it's a better for the environment doesn't have to be, you know, more expensive by any means. Yeah, uh, and actually, Mike, that's a great segue. I wasn't really planning to plug it, but uh, you gave me a good platform. Um, so I'm part of the uh, Produce Water Society Technical Committee. Uh, we're actually, ha- we have our annual seminar, or a bar annual seminar, I guess I should say, in uh, September in Houston. Uh, for anyone uh, w- uh, listening that uh, can come down, September 8 and 9, you can find it on the website, producewatersociety.com. And I think we're actually going to be talking about a lot of the issues, Mike, that you just brought up. And, and uh, you know, the Permian has made substantive headway and progress in the last call it seven years like since i've been out here so i've been in midland since 2014 the the massive advancement just in that time has been unbelievable and i think Mm -hmm. that we're really on the cusp of some other really game-changing things as well and and moving that needle forward and so uh, it's been fun to be an active participant in that conversation um but uh, but i mean i think you bring up some good points that uh, that there's still you know there's still a lot of area of opportunity to to productize or, or, you know, monetize in any of those sort of beneficial reuse or those new advents. So no, I think that's a great point. Yeah. And I'd invite you or anybody listening, you know, if you're interested in that space, come on out here. If you want to see some of the facilities, I think that's it. it, it I think we all, you know, generally need to be working together as much mm-hmm. as we can because, you know, we've got a lot up against us. And, and I think that that stigma of, you know, California, Texas, all that. So I think that's going away. And I think there's a, there's a lot of technology that you know has transferred between states that uh, and a lot of opportunity to to you know cross pollinate and see what's going on and 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 get the best technologies deployed that are that are out there in both both basins. No, I think you're exactly right. No, and I'd love to come out. Would love to take you up on that um, that invite and uh, see what you guys got going on over there. I mean, um, yeah, like I said, I mean through that work that I do with the Produce Water Society, but also uh, you know I own uh, Source Rock Midstream, and, and we do a number of things kind of straddling that line. So would love to see if there's some new ideas that we might be able to implement or kind of uh, you know, test pilot out here. That that would be that would be great. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, awesome. Hey, uh, well, Mike, I know we're running up against a little bit of time here. Why don't you um, uh, make sure that people know, you know where they can find you, any recent updates that you want to share with us? Where you know where are you on social media, et cetera? Yeah, I'm always on LinkedIn kind of posting stuff. I, I kind of post in that vein of, you know, you can be an oil and gas man. You can be an environmentalist at the same time. And, and, and we need to do it domestically uh, here. So Mike Umbro on LinkedIn. Uh, my email is Mike Umbro at, at fvcap.com. So Frank Victor, fieldviewcap.com. Um, and I mean, I'm always one to take a meeting, you know, shoot me an email, shoot me a note on LinkedIn. I, I love connecting with people and, and getting out there. And any, any way you want to get a hold of me, the, those are kind of the two best ways, I think. Awesome. Well, Mike, really appreciate the time. Great conversation. Looking forward to having a follow up and hearing a little bit more about what you've got going on and uh, maybe how uh, 21. Uh, wrapped up for you but uh we're gonna go ahead and sign off but i appreciate you taking the time with us all right thanks for having me it was fun appreciate it absolutely thank you all right and that is a wrap i am your host ben samuels this has been another episode of coffee and liquidity appreciate the support appreciate you guys showing up go ahead and check out alderonventures.com for more information about what we've got going on and future episode releases thanks guys